All right, welcome back to Third String Pod. I am one of your hosts, Zach Rippin, joined by your other hosts, Pete LaCleed and Ishan Nath. Guys, how are you doing today? It was uh, it was a, a rough day to be a Redskin fan, but I feel like every week that we're talking, I have some team to complain about. So maybe that's just my thing. Maybe as we're finding our way with this podcast, that's just my thing. Ishan, looks like life is a little better on the, the West Coast for, for you recently. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. It was a great weekend for Stanford, which is really all that matters to me on the West Coast. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm excited to get into some college football playoffs later, but today we're going to do an NBA show. We haven't talked in depth about NBA on this show yet, so we're going to do some sort of early season report cards, assessments, discussion about that, and I'm excited to get started. Uh, Before that, though, I do want to acknowledge the passing of Roy Halladay, who died on November 7th. As uh, someone who grew up a Phillies fan, I'm a huge Roy Halladay fan as well. His tenure with the Phillies was great. He pitched uh, one one of Major League Baseball's 23 perfect games ever, on May 29th, 2010. Really an all-time great guy and and a fantastic person from everyone who, who knew him and has since written about their interactions with him. So very sad to say that uh, Roy Halladay has passed, but here is a, a clip of his perfect game call from May 29th, 2010. Everybody on their feet. Halladay's got his signs. The 1-2 pitch. Hit toward third. Castro has it. Spins. Fires. A perfect game! Roy Halladay has thrown the second perfect game in Philadelphia Phillies history. He faces 27 batters. He retires all 27. It's the 20th perfect game in baseball history and the second one this year. What a night here in South Florida as Roy Halladay has thrown a perfect game. He didn't crack a smile all night long. He can crack as many smiles and as many bottles of champagne as he wants to now. So we just wanted to play that clip to honor Halladay. Uh, and, uh, of course, we extend our best wishes to his family as they grieve his loss. Uh, and uh, we have a lot of respect for the doc here at third string and I have a lot of memories of watching him play and he shaped my, my fandom of baseball. So thank you, Roy Halliday. All right, well, let's move on to NBA stuff. Ishan, you're kind of a resident NBA expert. So I'm teeing these questions up primarily with you in mind. I'm looking to you to, to weigh in on these and Pete, obviously jump in as, uh, as you're able, uh, I'm going to start with this. So, uh, Celtics and Cavs, right? Kyrie made a lot of people upset with social media comments uh, earlier this year and comments to reporters and the Cavs ended up trading him away to the Celtics Boston so far this year 11 and 2 Cleveland a losing record at 6 and 7 uh, currently 10th in the Eastern Conference while Boston is leading the Eastern Conference and of course it's early in the season but Isaiah Thomas who the Cavs acquired in that Kyrie trade has a labral tear in his hip he's not supposed to be better until January uh, and the Cavs knew about the injury when they made this trade. So it's not like they made the trade. He then got injured, and he's he's uh, on the injury report till January. They knew about it when they traded him, and he was injured from last postseason. Um, Kyrie is leading the Celtics in three-pointers per game. He's second in minutes played uh, behind Jalen Brown and Al Horford. He's the top Celtic in points per game, in total steals, assists, field goals, He's leading the Celtics in VORP, which is a value over replacement player, kind of the NBA equivalent of baseball's war. Uh, and uh, he's three years younger than Isaiah Thomas, which I didn't realize until I was looking at these guys' uh, uh, basketball reference uh, web uh, web pages. So I guess to make my question short, uh, Ishan, I'm not doing not doing a good job of that, but 
are the are the Cavs as bad in this trade as it looks like they are right now? Uh, so uh, I think the answer is no, uh, and I think there's some really important context which uh, I didn't hear. I, I think you might not have said, which is that Kyrie was demanding a trade from the Cavs. And uh, so they had to get rid of him. And obviously, you don't have a lot of leverage when you people know you have to trade somebody. Uh, so in the context of the other offers they were getting from other teams, the offer that they got from the Celtics was a gigantic offer. Uh, it was by far the best one on the table. And given that they had to trade him, it was a no-brainer, sort of a move. Uh, and they knew Isaiah was hurt, but they got a lot. They got some assets besides Isaiah. They got Jay Crowder, who's a really good three and three, three and D three point shooting and defense kind of wing, uh, who's been a key part of the Cavs rotation early on. It's going to be really important in the playoffs, especially if they make it back to the finals and have to face the warriors and all their perimeter players. Another guy who can shoot threes around LeBron and guard is really important. And they also got a potentially high draft pick from the Brooklyn nets, uh, through the Celtics. Uh, although the nets are five and eight to start the season. So it might not be quite as high a draft pick as some people thought, but there was some return to the trade other than Isaiah. And the reason that was necessary is because, like you said, Isaiah is recovering from this injury. He's three years older than Kyrie, and he's going to be a free agent next summer. So there's some real downsides in the Kyrie to Isaiah transition. But in some sense, the Cavs only care about this year because LeBron's a free agent next year, and they're not sure if he's going to stay. And so they really need to go all in to try to be as good as they can this season. And as far as that's concerned, if Isaiah comes back healthy from this hip injury, it's really not clear how much of a step down he is from Kyrie. He finished fifth in the MVP voting last year, averaged over 29 points per game on efficient shooting, uh, is not much of a force on defense, being under six feet tall. But neither was Kyrie until, shockingly, early this season. Kyrie's been playing some really great defense by all accounts. Uh, and so, all in all, they knew there were downsides to the trade. Uh, it was the best one they had on the table. It's, it's working out a lot better for the Celtics than anyone I think could have imagined just in terms of how well Kyrie is played and how well he's fit in. But, uh, the Cavs had to maximize for their own team and they definitely did that. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I, I'm a huge Kyrie fan and I'm a huge Isaiah Thomas fan as well. So it was interesting to see how this trade is working out, but the interesting thing to me is that, like you said, the Cavs are playing for this year, and yet they made this trade that involves a suboptimal return when they're giving up Kyrie and a future-round draft pick when they don't even know if LeBron's going to be there to lead the team. So I take your point. I'm still not sure if I'm if I'm quite in agreement. Well, so they had to trade Kyrie because he was demanding a trade, and so they couldn't bring him back into the locker room. And I don't remember exactly what the other offers were, but they were extremely underwhelming. Other teams were basically trying to steal Kyrie because he was demanding a trade, and the Celtics made like a legitimate offer of a superstar, a starter-level NBA player, and a top-five draft pick. So they sort of had no choice in the sense that, you know, we could did, did it make their franchise better off or worse off? Probably worse off. But that's relative to a scenario in which they keep Kyrie that was not on the table. Okay, well, this, with this new look, Eastern Conference, who's your bet to win the conference this year? Uh, I have no idea. I, I think uh, there's not really a lot of contenders that deserve to be talked about as finals contenders in the Eastern Conference. Uh, I think out of these top teams, the you know there's the Wizards, the Raptors, kind of the standard 
crew last last few years, and they're not really top five NBA Finals type team. Uh, and so then the two candidates you have that are probably going to play in the conference finals like last year are the Celtics and the Cavs. And I think before the Gordon Hayward injury, it was fair to look at the Celtics as a team with finals caliber talent because they had two, you know, very high level stars in Kyrie and Hayward and another Al Horford's like a star role player or a role player star, if you will. Uh, And so I think there was a world in which they had finals caliber talent that we're no longer living in. They're playing incredibly great basketball. They're on a 12 game winning streak. They have a plus 8.2 point differential best in the Eastern conference and tied for second best in the NBA behind only the warriors. Uh, So they're playing like a great team right now, but you know, they start, a 20 year old in Jalen Brown and a 19 year old in Jason Tatum. They don't have a lot of bench depth and they don't have much star talent past Kyrie right now. So it's hard to see them as a true contender. Uh, but that being, that, that being said, the Cavs are obviously struggling mightily right now at six and seven, uh, and having a tough time guarding anybody, which is something that Isaiah Thomas is not going to fix when he gets back. Uh, defense not being his strong point so basically i don't think anyone deserves to win the eastern conference i think the four or five best teams in the in the league are all in the west given that someone has to win the east it will probably be the Cavs. although i could see the celtics beating them but i don't think any of the other teams are real contenders these Cavs slides are not something totally out of the blue. Haven't we seen this a lot in past years with the Cavs? I mean, I know it looks kind of grim for them right now, but even with the, the worst defense in the league right now, a front office who seems to be mismanaging a little, uh, I, I really agree with you that I think that the Cavs are still the team to beat because we're so early in this season. It's it's almost too early to discount. Them. So I have a couple things to say about that. The the reason. So I think it's a little different than the usual Cavs slide for a couple reasons. One thing is not only do they have the worst defense in the league, they actually currently have the worst defense in NBA history in terms of points per hundred possessions, uh, which is pretty bad. And then the other thing is that it is a different team. Uh, I think people maybe underestimate how important Kyrie was to that team. And we're sort of seeing a little bit of that right now with the enormous lift he's giving the Celtics. And also the Cavs have added some pieces that are players that because of their names and their histories, we think of as good players that are actually very, very bad players in Dwayne Wade and Derek Rose, who uh, basically are guys who use possessions at a very high rate and do so extremely inefficiently, taking low percentage shots and also show no interest in playing defense. And Wade and Rose are both playing, you know, Rose is starting and Wade's playing like 20 minutes a game off the bench. So that's like 50 minutes a game where they have like really bad NBA players sucking up possessions and sucking up, uh, you know, defense malattention or whatever word is the right word. But I'm just saying that these aren't exactly the same. Until Isaiah is back, he's being replaced by some guys who are very not good. Do Do you think the addition of Dwayne Wade specifically coming off the bench is messing with the chemistry of this team? Obviously, like you said, a lot of different pieces, but it seems like D Wade is just not really fitting on that bench right now. Is that a bad pickup by that front office? You think? I had the enormous privilege of watching Dwayne Wade play for the Bulls last year, and uh, I would make a case that last season he was so I don't think it's a question of fit I think it's just a question of Dwayne Wade being bad at basketball at this age and this stage of his career uh 
I would make a case that Dwayne Wade was the worst player in the NBA last year on a minutes volume weighted basis in terms of total impact on winning. Like obviously there's guys who are worse who don't get playing time or don't shoot when they're in the game. But uh, I did some calculations once Dwayne Wade was 10th in the NBA usage, which is percent of possessions that end in a shot turnover or assist. Uh, So he's 10th in the NBA in usage on the bulls and his true shooting percentage uh, was around 49%, which is six percentage points below the NBA average of 55% last year. So I once calculated that with Dwayne Wade using possessions at the rate he did at the efficiency, he did the bulls would need Steph Curry to take every other shot that they had the entire season just to have a top 10 offense. Uh, and he also doesn't play defense at all. Like he outwardly does not try on defense at this stage in his career. Uh, so I think it's worse than him being a bad fit. I think he just, I actually think if Dwayne Wade plays 20 or 25 minutes in the playoffs, that's like enough of a negative impact that I could see the Cavs getting upset by someone like the Raptors or the Wizards. So how much is the Dwayne Wade pickup? you think based on kind of the LeBron James camp, who I think all the reports are saying are really running that Cavs front office or at least exercising some kind of uh, or, or some some bigger will than really any other player? And how much is it the fact that that front office missed out on Paul George and Jimmy Butler in the offseason and they were clearly hurting, uh, as you mentioned, when Kyrie decided that he was done in Cleveland? What, what, do, what do you think the spread is there? Yeah, I have no idea how the decision-making structure of the Cavs works. One thing I will say is that there's this weird thing in the NBA where there's it's almost like there's like a cool kids club of the guys who are known as stars and uh, – once you're in the cool, cool cool kids club, the other cool kids all think you're a cool kid because like the, even on the Bulls last year when Dwayne Wade was like obviously killing them from a numbers and eye test standpoint, Jimmy Butler, the other superstar on the Bulls, always like thought Dwayne Wade was playing really well and was their second best player. And, you know, LeBron seems to push really hard to have Wade, who's like his best friend, added to the Cavs and uh so there's this weird thing going on where the superstars like still seem to think Dwayne Wade is good, but like everyone who watches or blogs or writes about basketball knows that he's bad. Uh, and like LeBron's a really smart guy. He knows a lot of basketball. So it's just like this weird sort of blinders that uh, seem to be going on. But yeah, it's, I think it's a problem for them. Well, I'm going to jump on that point from you. And uh, just on the point of superstars, I'm going to pivot and I have a question about superstars or a potential superstar. So watching basketball this year, I've really enjoyed one person in particular, and that is Giannis Adetokounmpo. Do you guys think he's the most fun player in the NBA to watch right now? He's, he's leading the NBA in field goals, points, and player efficiency rating. Uh, he's, he's playing a lot, too. He's in the top 10 in minutes played. Uh, he's shot more, f- more free throws than anyone, so he's, he's getting fouled because he's in the thick of the action uh, all the time. He's not yet 23 years old, and when you look at his stats sheet, year by year, uh, he's gotten better in almost every category, every season he's played. So, uh, this guy doesn't maybe hasn't, hasn't still quite hit his ceiling, but he's incredible. He's, uh, eating up the competition and he's just a lot of fun to watch. What do you guys think? So, so I think that's a great point, Zach. What's funny is as we were talking about all the kind of pretenders and contenders here in the Eastern conference, uh, I was thinking about Milwaukee a little, obviously Milwaukee is, not great right now, but you're right. Giannis is a lot of fun to watch 
almost as much fun as hearing you pronounce that earlier. Well done, my friend. Um, but yeah, you know, I practice that actually. Uh, it's it's uh, it's an awesome name, but very difficult to pronounce. So I had to practice it to make sure I would I would say it correctly on the show. I was pretty relieved you went for it first. So appreciate that one. Um, yeah, I I think the Greek freak is he's he's so much fun to watch. He kind of reminds me of. Dirk back in probably 2009, 2010, 2011, when the Mavs were really clicking. Um, and not necessarily in, uh, obviously, a way that he leads the team, but more so in kind of the footwork with those spin modes and just his ability inside about 8 to 10 feet is just incredible in terms of, of what he can really pull up and accomplish. I mean, every game he's putting up 28, 30 points. Uh, he's always in the lane. As you mentioned, he gets to the free throw line all the time and can actually convert that. So that's a lot of fun to watch as well. Um, but for uh, a casual basketball fan on this end, you guys know that NBA basketball is not my forte, but I find myself watching it a lot kind of later at night. Uh, he's, he's a lot of fun and he seems to be leading the highlights for very good reasons right now, which I don't think we can always say about the NBA, but I'm, I'm really having a great time watching it, but let's, uh, let's kick it over to the expert. Ishan, what are your, what are your thoughts on him? Uh, yeah, so that's actually a great point. I totally forgot about the bucks a second ago. We were talking about teams in the East. I think the bucks are the team with the highest ceiling in the East. And it, it's not clear that they're going to get to that ceiling this season. Uh, they're off to a bit of a tough start. They're only six and six so far, but, uh, I think, you know, obviously we're talking about Giannis averaging almost 32 games, shooting 60% from the field. Uh, but they have a lot of depth of really high quality players. And they just added Eric Bledsoe from the Suns uh, and have gotten off to a good start in their first game with Bledsoe. He's a point guard who plays like, really good defense and is kind of like a fringe all-star quality player. And who also, like Kyrie, insisted on getting traded out of Phoenix. <laughs> Yeah, although in this situation, I'm incredibly sympathetic to Bledsoe in in the way that the Suns treated him. Uh, I felt like the Suns could not have handled the Bledsoe situation more poorly, yeah. especially in forcing him to sit out the last few games of the year last year to tank for a draft pick, which I thought was really disrespectful to your best player. Uh, but yeah, so they have Bledsoe, they have Giannis, who, you know, definitely LeBron aside is looking like... Kyrie or Giannis is the best player in the East. So, and, and Giannis is someone who can guard LeBron, but also what they have is a lot of depth on the perimeter. And in this new NBA, the guys who can do everything, shoot, guard, dribble, pass are kind of the new currency. And the bucks have probably more depth on that front than anyone else in the Eastern conference. So they have Giannis, then they have Chris Middleton, who's their probably their second best player, even now with Bledsoe, who's averaging 18 a game, six rebounds. He's like a 40% three-point shooter. And he's added a new element to this game this year where he's breaking guys down off the dribble a little bit more and passing. So he's up to five assists a game. And then Malcolm Brogdon, who was the rookie of the year last year, is now going to come off the bench behind Bledsoe. He's another really good player. He can shoot, pass, do everything. He's a 6'5 point guard. He's averaging 15 points, four and a half assists a game. Uh, Tony Snell's playing defense, shooting threes. They have some more length off the bench and John Henson, who's playing center. And then the real wild card for the bucks and where they can hit a higher ceiling this year is Jabari Parker, who absolutely overall pick a couple of years ago. He's out with a torn ACL, but should be returning. I believe like halfway through the season or something. And if they can get Parker into the fold and by the playoffs, have him back up to something resembling full strength, 
then with Giannis, Middleton, Parker, Bledsoe, and one of those other guys, I think that might be the best five-man closing lineup in the Eastern Conference. Uh, and so I could see them like really becoming a threat at the end of the season, just talent-wise, if they can put it together. I, w- I was seeing Jabari might even be back by the All-Star game here in February. So, I mean, granted, that's a little past the halfway point just mathematically. But if you if you get him back by midway through the season, I, I think you're, you're right on point, my friend. I think I think that could be a real turning point. Yeah, the big question is going to be what kind of Jabari they get back. Because obviously guys coming off ACL tears don't look like themselves for a while. But really what matters is that he's looking like himself for the postseason, right? Because it's... It's not quite a foregone conclusion that the Bucks will be in the postseason, but they almost certainly will. And so as long as Parker's back by then and fully recovered, that that's what matters, right? Yeah, totally. And they might, because of you know getting guys back from injuries and people being young, they might still be a year away from being a real contender. But uh, I do think that the Bucks will be playing in the NBA Finals like while I'm still in grad school. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, maybe a year away from being a real contender, let's talk about the Philadelphia Sixers. So... You guys know I'm a 76ers fan. The Sixers have done this this controversial trust the process, right, where they tanked. The Sixers are actually looking decent this year, maybe a year or two away from contention. But uh, what do you guys think? Are the Sixers finally good? I I think that's it's it's kind of a loaded question right now. So I I absolutely think that they are on the right track. I know that we keep joking about this trust the process mantra. Um, I think the 76ers right now are benefiting probably from a great young guy chemistry more than anything else. I think uh, between Simmons and Embiid, they have, like I said, a, a great chemistry that's working. I don't think you can pull this off with other rookies and other young guys that I, I think they've been very, very lucky. You're right. They had some good draft classes, but they've also missed on a few Uh and and I think that they're they're kind of they're they're getting more maturity out of their players than I think that we reasonably expected here in the first or second year. I think a lot of credit still goes to Brett Brown and maybe JJ Redick in the wings as well. I I think that they, it, I think it's the chemistry more than the the waiting it out and just hoping that the NBA parity comes around and the lottery process helps you out. Um, I I think they're they're absolutely on the, the the right path, but but I think they're. They're kind of getting lucky right now. Yeah, so uh, I have to confess that I uh, generally have been rooting against the Sixers' rebuild because I think it would be a horrible precedent for the NBA if throwing games for several years turned out to be a good strategy. Uh, And I think it's not that they tanked. It's like the egregious level to which they were signing non-NBA players in their quest to not win games. Uh, That was the part that I found to be distasteful. so as to how it's going right now, obviously Embiid is clearly on his way to being a top 10 player, if not higher, uh, based on the limited sample we've seen of him. Simmons has had as good of a 12 game start to a rookie career as anyone could have imagined. They haven't even, we haven't even seen much of Markel Fultz yet. The number one pick this year because of his shoulder injury. Uh, so the future looks bright. Uh, I think, and the, and the present is already starting to look bright with them winning half their games uh, early in the season. I think the thing about the Sixers rebuild is that if you're going to tank that many years, uh, you need to win titles for it to be a success. Becoming like a top four seed in the East at the end of this rebuild, if that's where they max out, like that's got to be seen as a failure for how many years of intentional losing it took to get here. And so it's just too early to say whether, you know, 
this team is going to launch. It's obviously going into the top half of the NBA over the next couple of years, but it's too early to say whether they're going to be like the eighth best team or the second best team. Uh, and so I think that's the part on which I at least will judge it. And the fact that they, you know, they have a lot of top picks. I think one thing to note is that that never guarantees anything. Like you look at the Wizards starting lineup and the Wizards have sort of plateaued as like, you know, the eighth best team in the NBA, roughly the fourth, third best team in the East. Most years, uh, John wall was the number one pick. Bradley Beal was the number two pick. Kelly Oubre, I think was like a fourth or fifth pick. Otto Porter was the third pick. So they're just stacked with all these guys who people thought were going to be superstars and they're coming out of the draft and like they maxed out as a pretty good team, but not a great team. And so I think, uh, it, that's, that's the part that the Sixers, you know, half decade long or however long the process has been going on will be judged is like when this team gets to where they're going, are they going to be actually great or just pretty good? Yeah. I mean, so I'm a Sixers fan, like I mentioned, but I also am against tanking and it has been sort of a disgrace to the sport, I think. And Ishan, like, like you mentioned, it wasn't just the uh, tanking, but also the signing of non-NBA players to ensure that you're not actually competitive and you will get high draft picks. So none of that's good. I mean, I obviously understand, right? And I think the draft matters more in the NBA than in any other major sport, certainly more than in the NFL or the MLB, um, because there's, uh, I think that the higher profile talent is more easily identifiable at the collegiate level than in another sport. Uh, but it's not it's not a defense for the tanking strategy. And, and the NBA already has competitive balance problems. And the fact that the Sixers could have success by manipulating the system so blatantly is, I think, concerning for those competitive balance issues. Um, the other thing I'll say is I will say the Sixers are not yet good because we've seen a small sample size, which we've all already talked about. But uh, I'm really concerned about the health of these guys. So uh, Joel Embiid has already had... Uh, stress fracture in his back, uh, foot problems, two surgeries on the same foot, uh, bone bruise, torn meniscus last season. So the guy has has not shown that he can stay on the court for the full 82-game uh, regular season, let alone a postseason on top of that. So I have major health concerns with Embiid. And then Simmons, of course, missed what would have been his rookie year then uh, because of an, a, a foot issue as well. So these guys are, have not shown that they can stay healthy, and I really have major concerns about that. And really, I think if you take away one of those two, even if, if Fultz comes back from, again, another injury, uh, you, you, you don't have success with two of those three getting playing time. I think you need all, all three of them, Simmons, Embiid, and Fultz, uh, to really look like a competitive team in the NBA, uh, a better than, 500, uh, better than 500 team. So... I do not think the Sixers are good yet, and I'm not really sure if the process is going to work out ultimately anyway. Yeah, the injury concerns are, are big too, for sure. Let's move on to college football. Pete, I will hand this off to you. Uh, college football in November. I, I truly think that uh, aside from the baseball playoffs, this is the most wonderful time of the year as we start to get really into the rivalry season. It's it's a lot of fun. I, I think anyone who's listened to us over the past couple weeks or anyone who's paying attention to college game day or any of these college shows knows that this weekend uh, was even more surprising than the weekend before. And you guys might remember the weekend before was kind of the pretenders and contenders, maybe a little bit of an eliminator weekend. Uh, 
this weekend seemed to be the the weekend of surprises. Uh, if you thought you knew what was coming, you you were sorely mistaken, and that's what makes college football so fun. Uh, I can think of about. 19 surprises off the top of my head. Uh, but but gents, tell tell me what stood out to you most of all. Obviously, we saw huge upsets. We saw some injuries. Uh, we are going to have a huge shakeup. But tell me what what's going on in your heads walking away from this weekend of college football. I was really surprised that Miami is actually good. I thought they were kind of like a, sort of a fraud undefeated team who just eked out some close wins against teams that weren't very good, like North Carolina. Carolina. Uh, I think they North Carolina by like one or four or something in the game that came down in the last minute. And so I was not a Miami believer. Uh, and Notre Dame had some great wins by several touchdowns. So that blowout win for Miami made me a Miami believer and was like the most surprising thing to me. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to actually go ahead and agree with each I thought that was the most surprising. But let me sort of recap some of the big events of the weekend and whether or not they were or were not surprising to me. So Stanford defeating Washington. I know Ishan's excited about that one, 30-22, to 22, the final score. I was not surprised by this. I think Stanford's been underrated for most of the season. I think Washington's been overrated. We talked earlier, uh, probably about a month ago, about Stanford versus the rest of the Pac-12, and I thought basically it was Stanford and USC uh, that, that the conference was theirs to, to take if they wanted it. Um, and I thought Washington and Washington State were overrated at the time, so I was not surprised by that. Clemson defeating Florida State by... Uh, two touchdowns and a field goal, not surprising. Wisconsin routing Iowa, not surprising. Ohio State destroying Michigan State. I mean, look, as a as a guy who likes Penn State, I don't like acknowledging that Ohio State, I'm not surprised by Ohio State crushing the team that beat Penn State the week before, but Penn State was playing in Lansing, that weird lightning rain delay game. Ohio State coming off a loss last week, uh, and Urban Meyer does not, yeah, blowout loss, but Urban Meyer recovers well from losses, I think you could say. Uh, I think he's undefeated in games following a loss. Uh, I'd have to double-check my math on that, or my uh, my stats on that, but he's done well following a loss, and so I was not surprised that Ohio State came back with the statement win. So I, I have three surprises on my list, and the most surprising is what Ishan already mentioned, but I do want to mention two other ones. So first, Auburn crushing Georgia. Now, I thought that Georgia deserved its number one spot in the college football playoff ranking just because of its quality of wins, but I did not actually think they were the number one team in the country. I did, however, think they were good enough to beat Auburn, uh, and clearly they were not. Uh, They gave up 40 points to Auburn and lost to them by uh, a three-touchdown margin. Um, Second surprise, Oklahoma crushing TCU. Now, uh, Pete and I, we talked about this a couple weeks ago on the pod, and I said that TCU was... uh, better than they should have been and should have slid ahead of Oklahoma in the rankings. I was clearly wrong on that. Um, I think Ishan thought, I know Ishan just mentioned uh, you thought that uh, Miami was sort of a sham who had squeaked by. That was my thinking on Oklahoma, uh, but I think I'm wrong on Oklahoma. I think Oklahoma is here to stay, and they showed that to TCU. I really expected this to be a close game, and I expected TCU to come away with it, not for Oklahoma to absolutely crush TCU. And the final score was 38-20, to but that makes it sound like TCU was more in it than they actually were. I mean, even though that's an 18-point victory, the game the game felt like a like 45 to nine beatdown. It was uh, not pretty to watch if you're a TCU fan. And then, so I will agree with you, Ishan. The surprise of the weekend: Miami embarrassing Notre Dame. Now, I thought Notre Dame was a little overrated. Um, I didn't think they were the third best team in the country, um, but 
I did think this game was going to be down to two touchdowns, uh, like one or two touchdowns, one or two scores. I did not think it was going to be what we ended up seeing. So Notre Dame exposed for being a sham and Miami looking really good. Uh, and I have Miami vaulting to number two. I think we're going to talk about rankings later, but sneak preview, I have Miami as my new number two team in the CFP rankings. Uh, so so the, the U is back is what you're telling me, Zach. I, I think that'll be a good debate here in a couple minutes. Yeah. Let's let's kind of pull the thread here on this, this Miami-Notre Dame uh, fiasco last night because I think if you watch it after about five minutes, you realize that it was not going to be a good game. Uh, either of you know off the top of your heads the last time uh, Notre Dame played in Hard Rock Stadium? No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the 90s. So, so it was actually a little more recent than that. It was back in uh, the, the 2012 season into the 2013 season. That's actually where they played the national championship against Alabama. Oh, really? Where okay. At, where at the half, they're down almost 30 points right. before they end up only losing by 40 points on the, the national stage. Remember, that was the, the Brian Kelly coming out party. Yes, that so was the embarrassment. maybe needs to stop scheduling games in Southern Florida. Maybe that's just a terrible idea. Um, but... But couldn't agree with you guys more. So Miami, anyone watching with the eye test, I think it was pretty clear pretty quickly that uh, that Miami had that game won. Uh, at halftime, they had a 92.7% chance of winning. At that point, the score was 20 to nothing. But it looked like Miami was probably putting 22 guys on defense uh, versus the 11 they were supposed to have, and they were just everywhere. Say what you will about the turnover chain. I personally am so tired of hearing about it. Thanks, ESPN. Uh, but either way, the Miami defense, I think, is really the, the big takeaway there for that game. But something neither of you have mentioned for a surprise that I think we got to talk about is how about Alabama in Starkville on Saturday night? So for anyone who wasn't watching the game, it was on ESPN. It was a night game. Uh Mississippi State kind of owns that game, I would argue, for the first three quarters. So the score was very close, kind of seesawing back and forth. Midway through the fourth quarter, Mississippi State is driving. Mississippi State ends up missing a field goal late. Uh, and then Alabama does what Alabama does. And they they kind of grit their teeth. They're, they're down a lot of linebackers on defense. But Jalen Hurts under center, who I think a lot of people would tell you has not been the best Alabama quarterback in history. Uh but I, I don't think many guys are uh, as clutch as he has been in the past couple of years where he, he gets it done and throws some beautiful passes under pressure and Alabama survives in Starkville. That's actually my biggest surprise. There were many. Uh, I think the way Ohio State manhandled Michigan State, uh, spoiler alert on the rankings, I think Ohio State is going to make a little noise here towards the end of the season. Uh but I, I think the way Alabama wins, obviously not a pretty win, but on the road, number 16 team, everyone's gunning for Alabama, and Alabama figures out a way to get it done. Uh, I, I was truly surprised by how effective Alabama was for how ineffective they looked early in that game and how much it seemed uh, Mississippi State just had their number. So I, I thought... I thought that was something. I think Alabama is going to, uh, they're going to benefit a lot from that come Tuesday night when the rankings are released. But Zach, you, oh, no. Uh, do you, do you mind if before we, we talk rankings, can we talk a little Heisman? I, I kind of wanted to, to talk about what Zach mentioned with Oklahoma. So uh, I have been an Oklahoma hater 
I will totally admit it. I thought Baker Mayfield was overrated. Him planting that Oklahoma flag on Ohio State's 50-yard line, I not only thought was tacky, but I thought it, it was it was kind of poor sportsmanship, to be honest. Um, but boy, if, if you want something done this year, it seems like Baker Mayfield's your guy after that Ohio State loss, whether it's the Oklahoma State game, whether it's what he's doing. Uh, against TCU, but there's there's some other Heisman candidates out there. Who who are you guys looking at here for, for kind of your one and two and why on the, the current Heisman situation? So uh, this is going to be my moment to go on a wild, unhinged rant that people find on the internet years later and prevent me from getting an academic job. Uh, so the Heisman Trophy, I think, in the opinion of all Stanford fans, is like a fundamentally illegitimate institution that's like little more than a popularity contest with some vague ties to college football. Uh, and I think the reason I feel like that is because of the 2015 Christian McCaffrey, not winning the Heisman in a season, which he broke Barry Sanders record for all purpose yards in a season on fewer touches than Sanders had, which was a record that many people thought it stood for 27 years. Many people thought it was unbreakable McCaffrey broke it he had more rushing yards more receiving yards and more return yards than Reggie Bush had in 2005 uh in a season which Bush won the Heisman in a landslide and many people thought it was one of the best seasons ever for a college football running back uh pro football focus actually graded McCaffrey's 2015 season as the best season ever for a college football running back and he did not win the Heisman so I think after that which was the fourth time in seven years which is kind of a remarkable stat that a Stanford player came in second in the Heisman voting. Uh, I think my confidence in the Heisman voting is approximately my same as my, the same as my confidence in an election in which Donald Trump wins. Uh, so that's how I feel about the Heisman to begin with. But I also came prepared with some Bryce love Baker Mayfield stats. So I actually think Baker Mayfield is like a fair choice. Uh, I think, Bryce Love and Baker Mayfield are roughly tied in my eyes for the Heisman. I would put Love ahead for reasons that I'm going to get into, but I don't think that Baker Mayfield is a bad candidate. And by the way, I don't think that the Stanford player deserved to win in all four of those seasons. I actually think Luck should not have been the Heisman in either of the two years when he was the runner-up, but I think that Gerhardt should have won over Ingram and McCaffrey, definitely. But Gerhardt over Ingram, I thought was bad. McCaffrey over Henry or McCaffrey not over Henry, I thought was bad enough that I just was like, I don't care about the Heisman anymore. Uh, but now to the Baker Mayfield, Bryce Love stats. So I think the big thing that people are missing about Baker Mayfield is that in the Big 12 where everyone's got a spread offense and there's like dozens of possessions in the game because everyone's running this hurry up offense, possessions happen really quickly. The defenses have really weak secondaries. The quarterback numbers are just absurd. So when you look at Mayfield's numbers in an in a vacuum, they look pretty great. He's got 3,500 over 3,500 passing yards, 31 touchdowns, five interceptions. Then you pull up the college football overall passing leaders, and you see that oh, Mason Rudolph, who's also in the Big 12, has 3,700 passing yards, approximately 30 touchdowns, seven interceptions. So like very similar stats. Then Will Greer from West Virginia has got 3,440 yards. 34 touchdowns, 12 interceptions. Someone named Nick Shimanek from Texas Tech has 3,300 passing yards, 28 interceptions, or 28 touchdowns, seven interceptions. And what do all these quarterbacks have in common? It's that they all play in the Big 12, where everyone runs a spread offense. There's dozens of possessions in the game. Everyone's scoring left and right. And when you look back for a few years, 
at Big 12 passing stats, you actually see that every year there are quarterbacks putting up these nutty stats like Baker Mayfield has right now. So just in the last, since 2012, the following quarterbacks have all put up in the range of 3,500, 4,000 plus yards, 35 to 40 touchdowns. Pat Mahomes, Trevon Boykin, Bryce Petty, Robert Griffin III, Geno Smith, Brandon Whedon, Seth Dogie, Nick Florence. So you can make a case, you know, I haven't even heard of some of these guys, that you can make a case that like, or, you know, perhaps I had heard of them but forgot. So you can make a case that like the Big 12 just has the greatest quarterbacks ever year after year. But I think what's more likely is just that passing stats are pretty inflated in the Big 12. So I think we should apply an appropriate Big 12 deflator to Baker Mayfield's passing stats, just like we economists would apply to inflation in any context. Uh, And so meanwhile, I want to talk about some Bryce Love stuff. So the Washington game on Friday, which we've talked about, ended after 2 a.m. on the East Coast, as probably, you know, 80 percent of Love's games have this year. But I think because it ended so late, people didn't appreciate that. In my opinion, that was the best game that a single player has played in college football all season this year. Love came in with a sprained ankle, was clearly hobbled the entire game. The Huskies came into the game and actually still after the game are first in FBS in yards per attempt, first in or like yards per play, first in college football in yards per game, first in college football in points per game given up, and second behind Alabama in offensive touchdowns given up. Uh, they given up one hundred yard game to a rusher. on on the season and three total rushing touchdowns the entire season and love put up 166 yards and three touchdowns, basically playing on one leg. The three touchdowns he scored by himself were one more than any team has put up on the Huskies this year. So by really any measure, he, he had, uh, an unbelievable game against a great defense. Uh, and then some broader stats that I put together, So love has just, when you compare love season to previous Heisman running backs, he's so far ahead in so many measures, which I think is appropriately comparing players by position, uh, is like an important way to think about these things. So loves played nine games. He missed one with a sprained ankle, which by the way, that one game he missed is probably his strongest statement for the Heisman because Stanford scored only nine points in the first 59 and a half minutes of that game against Oregon state, which was the worst defense they played all year. Uh, and Oregon state's been, I think had given up at least 35 points in every game up to that point. So it's kind of an illustration of just what a one man team Stanford's offense has been all season. And when love plays, you know, they put up 30 on the number one defense of the country. who's giving up 11 points per game, uh, and consistently been putting up pretty good scoring totals on Bryce's back, but he misses the one game and they almost lose the worst team on their schedule the entire year. Cause they just can't move the ball at all without him on offense. Uh, but I wanted to get to these stats comparing him to previous Heisman winners. So when Mark Ingram won the Heisman in 2009, he averaged 118 rushing yards per game, most of which he put up on the worst teams on his schedule. And until last week, Bryce Love was averaging 120 yards in the first half of games this season. Uh, Love has rushed for at least 147 yards in eight of his nine games. In 2015, Derrick Henry rushed for 147 or more yards in six of 15 games. In 2009, Mark Ingram rushed for 147 or more yards in three of 14 games. 2005, Reggie Bush only did it four times. Uh, Bryce Love has nine touchdown runs of over 50 yards this season uh, in nine games, which is more than Henry Ingram and Bush had combined in their Heisman seasons. 
Uh, so what Bryce Love is doing is a running back. He's even missing a game. Even if Stanford misses the Pac-12 championship game, he's probably going to end up with the most rushing yards of any Pac-12 running back in the last decade. So I think, uh, and that's on a Stanford team that doesn't have a lot of talent around, or, well, they have talent, but they don't have a lot of guys who played very well on offense around him. They haven't given him a ton of support and they play very slowly unlike all the, the spread offense teams. So they have very few possessions per game, which is why he needs to put up nine yards per carry to put up these sorts of stats. So I think when you compare Bryce love, what he's doing to the context that he's in, uh, it's, it's better than what Baker Mayfield's doing. Uh, I feel strongly about that as you might, might've noticed. Wow. That's a, that's a tough act to follow, man. I thought, I thought I was pretty caught up on research, but you kind of just owned me on that one. I think, I I think your points about the PAC 12, not get the love they need, especially for the Heisman race is, is right on point. I can't tell you the last time I sat down and watched a Saturday night West coast game. Um, I'll watch them on Friday nights or Thursday nights if they're on a little, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think the strength of schedule is still something that is, is getting glossed over a little when it comes to the Heisman discussion. I think, like you mentioned, it becomes a popularity contest more often than not. I think this year, Baker Mayfield is the exciting, uh, the exciting guy. You watch what he did in Bedlam. So I think the voters are more attuned to, to kind of what Oklahoma is doing, probably based on the prestige of the program as well. But I, I think you made some great points. I was pretty solid on a... Yeah, I was, I was pretty pretty solid on Baker Mayfield until this point. And I'm, I'm looking at all my research and you've, you've kind of talked me out of it. I, I, I don't know. Well, that was a, that, that was a, that was a great discussion on the Heisman. I think just as charged as what the Heisman debate is going to be uh, as we, we get down the stretch. Uh, obviously, we're still a couple weeks away from the, the final college football ranking. But this weekend, I think more than any other weekend, I'd argue in the past four years since the college football playoff came into effect, uh, kind of threw everything on its head that we were expecting, believing, hoping, whatever word with an L-Y you want to use is. Uh, but I guarantee all three of us have different rankings of our top six. Uh, I guarantee uh, everyone in that college football playoff room is going to have a different set of rankings. But give, give me give me a couple minutes on what you guys are thinking, uh, specifically with your top six. Ishan, let's, uh, let's start with you, man. All right. So uh, I have... So I think it's also interesting to think a little a little bit ahead, especially since we're not recording every week in terms of scenarios of how the top six are going to play out and who's got a clear path left uh, and what needs to happen for different teams to get in. Uh, but that caveat aside, I'm going to go Alabama one, Miami two, uh, Oklahoma three, Wisconsin four, Clemson five, Auburn six, and then followed by Georgia and Ohio state. And I think those are the only eight teams left that really matter, uh, for the college football playoff. It's really hard to imagine someone else making their way up, up there. So I've got actually a very similar ranking, a little bit different with the top four. So Alabama is the obvious number one, right? Undefeated. And it was number two is the heir apparent when Georgia falls and Georgia did fall yesterday. So Alabama, number one. I have Miami vaulting all the way up to number two, just like Ishan does. Again, undefeated and with a quality win, to say the least, over previously number three, Notre Dame. 
I have Oklahoma jumping over Clemson to number three, taking what was previously Notre Dame's spot, uh, and that's just based on the quality win over TCU over the weekend. I have Clemson holding steady at four, but I have Wisconsin jumping up to five, so that's where Ishan, you and I differ. Uh, I have Auburn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Clemson just holding steady, and then Wisconsin I know is already undefeated, but I think the committee is going to be waiting for the Big Ten championship game basically to see if Wisconsin jumps into the top four. So Wisconsin at number five for me right now. I have Auburn jumping up to six, which is interesting because that's pretty high ranking for a two-loss team. So, Pete, I know last week we talked about two-loss teams in the CFP. Uh, just keep keep an eye on Auburn is all I'll say. I have them at number six right now. Um, just for fun, I went with the top ten, actually, Pete. So I have Ohio State at number seven behind Auburn. Again, a two-loss team. I have Georgia falling back to number eight, previously number one, but uh, getting destroyed by Auburn this weekend. I have Penn State at number nine, and then I have UCF at number 10. Just because UCF's undefeated, and I think the committee's got to show them a little bit of respect, uh, there's obviously no chance of UCF getting into a playoff, but I think a number 10 ranking is appropriate for an undefeated team. What about you, Pete? Oh, well, you guys know me. I got to be different. So, uh, I like you guys, I have Bama number one. I actually, after flipping between all these games yesterday, have Oklahoma sitting at number two. I think the way that they dismantled the number six team uh, really made a statement. I actually have Clemson sitting at number three. I still have them one ring above Miami solely based on uh, strength of schedule so far. Uh, obviously, they've got that one loss to Syracuse. Uh, I'm still not convinced Miami is going to go undefeated, and I think just based on resume right now, I like Clemson at number three. I do have Miami at number four, Wisconsin at number five. Totally agree with what you said, Zach, that, they're, that the committee is going to wait for Wisconsin to really show them something. They do have a big game with Michigan coming up. So I, I think that's going to slide a little after this weekend either way. But Wisconsin at five, Auburn at number six, Georgia at number seven, and then I threw on Ohio State at eight as well. You guys know how much I love talking about these two lost teams. Uh, and I think either Auburn or Ohio State is going to make this very, very ugly for the playoff committee here soon. And hopefully my prayers will be answered and this will grenade the whole four-team playoff system and we'll move on to eight when it's all said and done, but it's, we, I, I think we've known since the inception of this program that this was just the, the starting point. And I, I think that's okay. Uh, I think the committee was very well aware that it wouldn't be four teams forever, but I think this might finally kind of, kind of leverage us into what we need going forward. But how, how much do you guys hate that? I have Clemson sitting at number three and Oklahoma sitting at number two. Yeah, I think I think that's totally defensible. I don't think it's an unreasonable decision at all. I mean, not surprised that a good old ACC homer like you has two ACC teams in the top four right now. But well, uh, my <laughs> ACC team didn't show up, so I got to overcompensate. That's, that's true. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I think Oklahoma over Miami is a reasonable thing. I just am privileging Miami because of their undefeated resume and really now a quality win over Notre Dame. Um, I'm I'm less in agreement over on Clemson jumping up a spot. I don't think they're their win this weekend justifies that. So I can see Alabama, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Miami, Clemson, um, but I don't think I see Clemson above Miami. So, so based on their resumes right now, you put them head to head. Are you taking Miami in that matchup? You think? Because yeah. I mean that that is the ACC championship game, yeah. unless this gets grenaded even more. Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, your point earlier about Miami's defense, uh, they're they're convincing, and I do not see. Uh, Kelly Bryan and the Clemson offensive attack thriving against that Miami front. 
Fair. That, that's totally fair. So, so one yep, thing I no. want to add about the rankings is that I actually think they don't matter that much in not in like a totally trivial sense that obviously they don't matter till the last week. I just mean like a lot of these things are going to be decided on the field. And I think what's interesting to think about is which teams control their own destiny uh, and have a path to the top four without needing other things to happen. So I think right now those top six, I think the top seven teams clearly control their own destiny. Alabama, Miami, Clemson, Oklahoma, Wisconsin. If they went out, I think it's uncontroversial that they'll be in the playoff. Uh, and that I think the same is probably true for Auburn. If they went out, they'll have beaten Alabama and Georgia on their way to doing so. Uh, and then they'll be, you know, 11 and two sec champs and should be ahead of Alabama and Georgia in the pecking order. So I would think that would get them in. I would think Georgia, if they went out and are one loss sec champion would still be in. I think Ohio state is where it gets to the point where you can imagine they went out and they're still behind the sec champ, the ACC champ, Oklahoma, and possibly a runner up from the sec or ACC. Uh, especially the SEC, especially if Alabama were the team to lose. Uh, so what do you guys think about that? I think the top seven teams, if they went out, they're in. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I think the rankings are in part just to generate uh, excitement among fans and sort of be fodder for, you know, third string analysts like us uh, to just to, to talk about and banter about. But I think you're, you're correct. If you're a power team in a power conference, you win out, you're in the college football playoff. The, the question obviously is, is how, how easy is it to do and, not easy. Sorry, I mean went out from this point on. Yeah, no, I mean I think you're totally right. Those the top the top seven teams as you mentioned, if they they control their own destiny. So if they win out, and a lot of that's just mathematically because winning out is mutually exclusive, right? So it's impossible for Auburn and Alabama and Georgia to all win out. That just can't happen. So whichever one of those manages to win out, if any of them, will punch its own ticket to the CFP. Yeah. So I mean, I think this season. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what the controversies are. I think it could end up being one of the cleaner top fours in the end, just because, uh, you know, the Pac-12, their only path to a, their their only two lost teams are teams that are pretty stained. Uh, Washington State has a blowout loss to Cal, and USC has a blowout loss to uh, Notre Dame. Uh, and so I think with the Pac-12, like likely not in contention for the playoff, it could be pretty neat who the top four teams are. But if Ohio State wins the Big 12, I think there's going to be this question of, uh, you know, if there's a a one-loss non-champion, if Alabama loses to Auburn, for instance, I think it would be pretty hard for the committee after leaving Penn State out because of a blowout loss last year uh, to put Ohio State in with two losses despite that blowout loss to Iowa. So if I were Ohio, I, I think Ohio State, is still in trouble if they went out. Hmm, that's fair. Here's here's one more uh, before we sign off that I kind of want to throw at you guys. So you remember when we, we didn't have a, a championship game in the Big 12, and that was a huge debate, and all we talked about was how much that hurt the Big 12? What if Oklahoma loses in the, the Big 12 championship this year? Like, we, we could look at an SEC, ACC, and then who knows with that fourth spot, top four, 
because of championship games. All we've talked about for years is every conference needs a championship game. You're not legitimate if you don't have a championship game. The championship games here, honestly, could hurt all four of these teams. And I know we talk about that every year, but this year more than ever, it seems that everyone is going to be very, very vulnerable with that championship game. And every conference could lose out on a heck of a lot of money if they miss those top four because they have their their lower ranked team do something crazy in that championship game. Well, so it's not just the championship game. There's a lot of ways in which it's uneven. So the Big Ten, the ACC, I think, and the SEC all play eight conference games, whereas the Pac-12 and the Big 12 play nine conference games. Correct. And not only is Correct. that one more chance to lose for the top teams, I think the the impact of that is actually a lot deeper in the sense that that means there's you know one more game for all the teams. So that's like seven more losses floating around in the sec or big 10, if they added an extra conference game. And then when there's seven more losses floating around in the conference, then all of the teams are a little further down in the rankings. Cause all the two loss teams might be a three loss team. And the three loss teams might be a four loss team. And so it reduces the perceived quality of wins as well. When you have that one fewer conference game. So I think the big 12 and the pack 10 pack 12 are biting themselves in the foot or shooting the, whatever mixing metaphors, uh, even worse than just what the championship games make it look like. I think we need to move to a state where they, they all, all the conferences play the same number of games, the same number of non-conference games and the, the same championship game. Well, on that note, uh, if the NCAA NCAA wants to call Ishan with a solution for competitive balance in NCAA football, please do. We're out of time. So we've got to wrap up this episode of third string podcast now, but if you want to get in touch with us, you can follow any of us on Twitter or just follow us at Third String Pod. Reach out with your questions that you want us to discuss next week on the podcast. Pete and Nishan, as always, it's been a pleasure. Have a great week, you guys. We'll talk next week.